Few Old Testament stories cross over into popular culture, but one such example concerns Samson and his second wife, a disloyal temptress who happily sells her husband down the river. After the disaster of his first marriage, Samson heads to the coastal Philistine city of Gaza, where, perhaps unexpectedly for a major hero in the Bible, he consoles himself with a local prostitute. The citizens of Gaza see an opportunity to ambush and kill him when he leaves the woman the following morning. But in the middle of the night, Samson bursts, hulk-like, out of the city gates, carrying the doors and pillars with him. He doesn't stop until he reaches Hebron, some 40 miles from Gaza, where he dumps them on a hill facing the city. The gates of Gaza would have been as high as a two-storey building, emphasising the strength needed to carry them to Hebron. It is some time after this that Samson meets and falls in love with a woman who, like his previous wife, is most likely a Philistine, Delilah. My name is Chaz Bayfield and this is Holy Bible Episode 60, Gang Rape. Hello and welcome back to the only podcast on the airwaves that takes you on a tour of the Bible without either trying to prove or disprove any of it. We just tell it in a way that hopefully makes easy listening, despite the Bible often being a pretty complex read. And we're on episode 60 already, and still only on the Bible's sixth book. If you're new, we're about to launch into the sorry tale of Samson and Delilah, an episode which takes place in the Old Testament book of Judges, and which, like Adam and Eve, Noah and David and Goliath, is one of the few Old Testament stories that have transcended the Bible and are relatively familiar with people who aren't remotely religious. For the record, Samson is a Jewish strongman from Israel, but seems fatally attracted to women from the enemy nation of Philistia. As such, he's one of the most unusual heroes in the Bible. Here goes. Immediately seeing his new relationship as an opportunity to neutralise Samson, the Philistine leaders each offer Delilah 28 pounds of silver to find out the secret of his strength so that they can overpower him. Don't worry if your brain doesn't work in imperial measurements. I put the metric conversions in the show notes. 28 pounds of precious metal is a head-turning amount of money, worth around 8,500 pounds today, and shows how much the Philistines want to eliminate Israel's one-man army. Money is clearly worth more than love to Samson's new wife, and she asks her husband to let her in on his secret. Possibly suspicious that she might betray him, or simply wanting a bit of fun at her expense, Samson lies that only seven fresh bowstrings can hold him down. That night, Delilah ties up her sleeping husband with bowstrings and invites Philistine guards into their bedroom. She yells to Samson that he is under attack, and his restraints snap like weak string. Embarrassed, Delilah demands the truth and Samson confesses that only new ropes can bind him. Delilah clearly hasn't heard how her husband has escaped from new ropes once before and the attempt fails, as does weaving Samson's seven dreadlock-like braids into a loom. 
It's one of the Bible's great mysteries why Samson remains married to a woman who appears so utterly intent on double-crossing him. To her credit, Delilah refuses to give up, asking her husband how he can tell her that he loves her if he won't share his secret. Worn down by what the Bible describes as her constant nagging, Samson reveals that his actual strength lies in his hair. If he loses it, he tells her, he'll become as weak as any man. That night, Delilah soothes her husband to sleep with his head in her lap, and, once he is dead to the world, the leaders of the Philistines arrive with their silver. They shave off Samson's hair, and his strength is gone. Again, Delilah cries out in faux panic, but this time, Samson can't shake himself free. Bald and weak, he is slapped in chains, his eyes gouged out, and he is forced to grind corn on a treadmill in a Philistine jail. It's an appalling betrayal and a tragic end to a love story. Unsurprisingly, Delilah's greed and Samson's loss of strength have inspired many artists and writers over the centuries. One example of this is the 1984 Leonard Cohen song Hallelujah, made famous by Jeff Buckley, which includes the lyric, She tied you to a kitchen chair, she broke your throne, and she cut your hair. Another, of course, is the 1968 Tom Jones murder ballad Delilah, which has sold five million copies worldwide. As for Samson, it seems like the end both for him and the hopes of Israel. But this fallen hero is still a judge, and this is far from the end of his story. Thankfully for fans of happy endings, Samson's story concludes with a satisfying crescendo. He has been such a threat to the Philistines that his incarceration is seen as a reason to celebrate. The Philistines host a huge banquet in a temple where they offer sacrifices to their deity, Dagon, thanking him for finally ending the threat against their people. For them, the party isn't complete without an appearance from their special guest, Samson, and so the once proud warrior is brought in from his prison to entertain the guests. Quite what this entertainment consists of, readers are not told, but Samson clearly performs his duties adequately, and certainly doesn't give the impression that he has a master plan that is about to unfold catastrophically for his audience. Samson may be blind and imprisoned, but he is still Israel's leader. He also knows that simple human biology is on his side. During his years of incarceration, his hair has regrown and his strength is back. Pretending that he is still weak, he persuades the servant leading him around to position him near the great pillars that support the temple so that he can rest against them. The temple is packed with worshippers and another 3,000 Philistines have gathered on the roof to watch their enemy be further humiliated. Samson prays to God to give him the strength to exact revenge on the Philistines who put out his eyes and pushes on the two massive pillars while yelling, let me die with the Philistines. The building collapses, death and carnage ensue and the book of Judges relates that Samson's decisive act destroys more people than he ever killed in his lifetime. When the dust settles, Samson's loyal family retrieve his body and bring him home to be buried in his father's tomb. 
Unsurprisingly, Samson has since lent his name to any number of massive items of military and commercial hardware, from armoured vehicles, steam locomotives, giant cranes and the Samson option, Israel's nuclear deterrent strategy. Some time after Samson has been buried next to his father, a man called Micah from the tribe of Ephraim steals silver from his mother. Firstly, the Micah in this story is not the prophet whose book appears later on in the Old Testament. Many of the Bible's characters share the same name, an idiosyncrasy which Christians believe adds credibility to the book. The amount of silver that Micah has stolen from his mother weighs an astonishing 28 pounds, and when he realises that a curse is attached to it should it be stolen, he returns it. His mother obviously dotes on her boy, and, overjoyed at receiving her treasure back, she vows to use some of it to make an idol for God. She has clearly missed the commandment given to Moses, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below, and briefs a silversmith to get to work. The idol is not Micah's only god, he has a whole shrine in his house filled with pagan worship ephemera. Initially, Micah uses one of his own sons as a priest to look after his idol collection. As if acknowledging how messed up this is, the book of Judges tells readers that Israel has no king at this time and everyone does as they please. Events take a turn for the worse from a Jewish perspective when a travelling Levite from Bethlehem arrives in Ephraim looking for a place to stay. Levites are the men from the tribe of Levi whose job it is to assist the priests and this man stops at Micah's house where he is offered food, lodging and a small salary to become Micah's personal priest. It is a sign of how low the spiritual mood has sunk that this man, who should be dedicated to the worship of God, agrees to serve Micah's own pagan deity in exchange for money. For his part, Micah now believes that with a bona fide priest in his house, he is under God's protection. Around this time, the tribe of Dan is looking for a new home to the east, having lost most of its territory. Scouts come to Micah's town and are invited to spend the night with him. Possibly because of his accent, they recognise Micah's holy man as a Levite and seem surprised that he is working as his private priest. Taking advantage of the moment, they ask the priest if their objective to find new land will be successful and, without apparently asking God anything, the man tells them that God approves of their mission. On arriving at Laish in the far north of Israel, the men find a kingdom that is secluded, comfortable and prosperous, and on their return to base, they urge their compatriots to attack the place. Dan's scouts return with 600 warriors to sack the city, and on their way north, they pass through the hill country of Ephraim. Here, they stop at Micah's house. The scouts who came here earlier remember that there is treasure in Micah's shrine, and, while the army waits at the gate, they enter the building and seize the sacred items. When Micah's priest asks what they are doing, they tell him to stop making a scene and to follow them and become their priest instead. The thinking is that it is better for a Levite to serve an entire tribe of Israel than one man's household. Flattered, the priest doesn't need asking twice and sets off with a Danite army towards Laish. 
Unhappy that he has lost his holy man, Micah raises some troops of his own and chases after them. The Danites can't see how a fellow Israelite can possibly view what they are doing as wrong. And when he realises that this is a battle which he can't win, Micah returns home empty-handed. Meanwhile, the Danites conquer Laish, which the writer describes as secure and peaceful. However, instead of destroying Micah's silver idol, the Danites set it up in their new city and installed Jonathan, a grandson of Moses himself, as their priest to look after them. This is probably the same Levite who used to work for Micah. However, the period of the judges covers over 400 years, so any actual grandson of the Israelites' great leader would have been long dead. That means Jonathan, son of Gershom, son of Moses, is only a son in the sense that he is a distant male descendant. The kind of idolatry practised by the tribe of Dan continues until Israel is captured by the Assyrians in the 8th century BC, and the story serves as an example of the kind of godless behaviour that ultimately leads to God abandoning his people to the wolves. As the writer of the book of Judges says once again, in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. The last episode to be recorded in the book of Judges is so catastrophic that an entire tribe of Israel is almost wiped off the map. While the Danites are worshipping pagan idols in their new land, the tabernacle appears to have found a permanent home in Ephraim, in the town of Shiloh. However, its presence does little to woo Israel's people away from their pagan spirituality, and, as if the moral decay in the nation hasn't already bottomed out, a Levite from a remote part of Ephraim decides that it is appropriate for him to have a concubine. For the record, concubines are second-tier wives, a kind of slave-come-mistress-come-companion who often shares her man with other wives and concubines. As such, she has few rights or protections, but her relationship with the man who she belongs to does keep her from being utterly destitute, the only other option for an unmarried woman in Old Testament times who is no longer a virgin and has no family to fall back on. The book of Judges reports that the woman has been unfaithful to the Levite and leaves him to move back to her parents' house in Bethlehem. Either because he is attached to her or he simply believes that she belongs to him, the Levite follows her there to persuade her to come back to him. The woman's father appears to be a big fan of the Levite and pressures him to stay, bombarding him with food and wine. After four nights of this, the holy man insists that he has to leave with his wayward girlfriend. Finally, on the fifth day, they manage to make their exit, but only after the Levite has been plied with hospitality until early evening. The couple load up their two donkeys, and along with the Levite's servant, they head off towards Ephraim. On their way, the party passes near Jerusalem, which at that time has yet to be conquered by Israel. The Canaanite Jebusites still live there, and the Levite refuses his servant's suggestion to lodge in the city, as the people aren't Jews, an example of blatant hypocrisy given how conflicted his slave wife makes him. Instead, the three travellers press on to the city of Gibeah in Benjamite territory, by which time it is nightfall. Desperately in need of somewhere to sleep, they sit in the city's main square and wait. No hospitality is forthcoming until an old man stops on his way home from his work in the nearby fields. 
After a brief introduction, the Levite assures the man that they have enough food and drink for themselves and straw for their pack animals, and so the man doesn't hesitate to take them in. In fact, he seems overly keen for them not to remain in the square any longer than necessary, for good reason. Later, while they are enjoying a pleasant evening with their new friend, a local mob descends on the house and demands that the old man hand the Levite over to them so that they can rape him. It's only a carbon copy of the episode in the book of Genesis, where the men of Sodom are eager to despoil Lot's angelic visitors. If you're new, head back to episode 5, Fire from the Sky, for all the gory details. In that story, Lot offers the men his virgin daughters, and, possibly using this biblical ancient as a role model, the old man offers the men his own daughter and the Levite's concubine to do what they want with. Anything, so long as his male guest isn't harmed. The men at the door aren't in the mood to listen, and to either calm them down or buy time, the Levite then sends his concubine outside, where she is raped repeatedly until dawn. At daybreak, her attackers leave, and she manages to stagger to the door. When the Levite finds her, the woman is lying with her hands gripping the doorstep in a last desperate bid to get to safety. He orders her to get up, but she has sustained such severe injuries that she is dead. Placing her on his donkey, the Levite rides back to Ephraim. Furious, he cuts her body into twelve pieces and sends one piece to each of the twelve tribes of Israel, asking their leaders what they plan to do. The greybeards who govern Israel's tribes are appalled at what has happened and agree that nothing so terrible as this woman's death has ever happened in Israel's history. Something must be done, but what? Appalling as the attack is, the Levite's actions are also intended to disgust readers. He not only has a concubine, but he leaves her to be gang-raped. He sleeps through her assault, then orders the badly injured woman to get up the following morning. Finally, instead of giving her a dignified burial, he uses her body to incite revenge against the tribe of Benjamin. If the book's original readers need further evidence of how far the spiritual barometer of Israel has fallen, it is this. The rest of Israel is horrified at what has happened in Gibeah. Rather than identify and discipline the perpetrators, they decide to punish the entire tribe of Benjamin. As a result of the concubine's rape and murder, the whole of Israel descends on the city of Mizpah in Benjamite territory. Between them, they have 400,000 armed men and their leaders ask for clarity on what exactly took place. The Levite goes through the gory details and asks the tribes what they intend to do. Israel's leaders don't need to confer. They will amass a fighting force and attack Gibeah. To expedite this, every tenth man from the rest of Israel is commissioned to fight and a vast army gathers at the town, ready to exact revenge. Messengers are sent throughout Benjamin, urging locals to hand over the culprits so that they can be punished. Evil has been done in Israel, they tell them, and it must be purged. It is here that matters get out of hand. Insulted and perhaps feeling that their fellow Israelites are overreacting, the Benjamites refuse and raise an army of their own instead. 
clearly not factoring in the near impossible odds, the Benjamites rally some 27,000 troops to face an army of almost half a million. Israel's leaders meet at Bethel, where they ask God which tribe should attack first. The answer which they believe God has given them is Judah. Benjamin's neighbour should lead the assault on Gibeah. It's uncertain why Israel's leaders come to Bethel to ask for God's opinion, as the tabernacle is stationed at Shiloh at the time. However, the tabernacle is still portable and may have spent some time in Bethel. The next morning, battle commences, and it's an astonishing victory for Benjamin as its soldiers cut down 22,000 of their fellow Israelites, no doubt helped by 700 elite troops who can sling stones left-handed with sniper-like accuracy. The Israelites regroup, but find it hugely distressing to be fighting against their own people. Mass weeping sets in until evening, when the nation's leaders approach God again to ask if this is really what he wants. Apparently it is, and battle recommences the following day, with another coup for Benjamin as 18,000 Israelite troops fall. Distraught, the Israelites fast until evening and again consult God at the shrine in Bethel, where Phinehas, Aaron's grandson, is still in charge. The message that comes back from God is that the next day, the battle will be theirs. As with Jonathan, grandson of Moses, the Phinehas here in the book of Judges must be several more generations away from Aaron than a grandson, especially as Aaron dies before the book of Joshua begins. Joshua's book covers around 25 years and the judges rule for another 400, so any descendant of Aaron alive at the end of this book would have to be a distant one. Fans of battle tactics will appreciate the way Israel defeats Benjamin. Taking advantage of superior numbers, the army splits in two, with one unit ordered to lie in wait in readiness to ambush the rogue tribe. As on the previous two days, Israel takes up its usual position opposite Gibeah, and, buoyed by its recent success, Benjamin comes out of the city to fight. The Israelite troops gradually retreat, drawing the Benjamites further away from their town. And again, it looks like it will be another victory for the underdog. Just then, the ambush springs into attack, catching Benjamin completely unawares. The retreating Israelites stop retreating and press in on Benjamin so that the attack is now coming from in front and behind. Those troops who formed the ambush now turn back towards the city, a prearranged smoke signal from Gibeah lets Israel know that the city has been conquered, and when those Benjamites still fighting see the column of smoke, they realise that it is over. Fleeing into the wilderness, they are outrun and cut down by their fellow Israelites. Over 25,000 of Benjamin's troops are killed, and another 600 are so filled with fear that they hide out in the hills for the next four months. Israel then destroys every one of Benjamin's towns, killing its men, women, children and animals and setting its buildings on fire. It's one of the darkest days in Israelite history. Their ancestors came into this country with a purpose. They believe that God helped their forefathers clear away enemy nations so that they could thrive here. And now here they are, 
killing each other because a Levite had a sexual relationship with a woman who he wasn't married to and that woman was raped and killed by a gang of thugs. It's a mess and very far from the ideal which Abraham believed he was promised and which Moses spent 40 years working towards. Before going into battle with their brothers, Israel's tribal leaders make a rash promise that none of them should give their daughters to a Benjamite to marry. This results in a potentially disastrous shortage of women. Without the means of producing sons, one of Israel's tribes will die. To help them decide what to do, the leaders gather at Bethel, build an altar and offer sacrifices to God. However, it seems that some leaders are missing. A shocking act of rebellion, as not being present at this particular meeting has been advertised as a crime punishable by death. All leaders have sworn on oath that they will be there. The absence of any chiefs from Jabesh-Gilead, a town on the River Jordan midway between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee, helps give Israel a way out of this particular fix. In order for Israel to provide the surviving men from Benjamin with wives when everyone has sworn before God not to give them their daughters, the solution is staring them in the face. The nation must ride against Jabesh-Gilead, kill its men, seize its unmarried women and give them to the Benjamites. It's a Bible equivalent of, if you're in a hole, keep digging. In a Viking-style raid, 12,000 troops are sent to the city and for the second time, Israelites cut down their fellow Israelites. Every man in Jabesh-Gilead is slaughtered, as is every woman who is not a virgin. The 400 girls who are the city's sole survivors are then herded into a temporary camp at Shiloh. A peace treaty is struck with Benjamin and the girls are given to its men as wives. However, the number of women is still woefully inadequate. It's a dilemma for Israel as they cannot bear for the tribe to die out because of their actions. They then hatch a plan that involves the Benjamites taking direct action themselves. A festival is taking place in Shiloh and Benjamin's men are instructed to lie in wait in the nearby vineyards. When the local girls come past dancing, the men are to leap out, each grab one of them and take them back to Benjamin, with the rest of Israel turning a blind eye. Should the girls' fathers complain, they will be told that they are doing their bit for Israel and should be reassured that they haven't had to break their oath. After all, they didn't give their daughters to the Benjamites, they were taken from them. Another 400 young women are kidnapped and the Benjamites take their human trophies back to their tribal lands, rebuilding their towns while the rest of Israel returns home. The rape of one woman has now turned into the rape of 800. Morally, Israel is falling apart. The drift away from God in just a few generations is hard to fathom and the book of Judges ends with its chilling refrain. In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. And so the book of Judges draws to a close. Israel is leaderless once again. The nation has strayed so far from the ideal for living a God-centered life laid down just a few books earlier that the rape of a Levite's concubine has led to civil war. How can the country bounce back? 
Who will lead them? Or is this a mountain that is simply too hard to climb? Holy Bible Season 7 is next. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chas Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. Feel free to follow us on Twitter or Facebook. And if you like us, tell your friends, or better still, leave us a five-star review on whatever channel you're listening. Thank you.